Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 23, the Frosting on Top of Frosting Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On this week's show, we'll discuss the mysteries of that rarest and most temperamental of comedy subgenres, the spoof. Then we'll re-examine the wisdom of withholding information from an audience. It worked for Jaws, but is it always an effective strategy? To honor the release of Life Itself, the game this week is Oh Roger, in which I'll quiz our panel on Roger Ebert opinions that broke sharply with consensus. Then we wrap it up, as always, with our quick-fire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. This week at the Dissolve, we had a great time revisiting Airplane for our Movie of the Week feature. Last week, director David Wayne and stars Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler gave the rom-com the wet-hot American summer treatment with They Came Together. Does this mean the spoof is on the rise? No, it doesn't, but it's a subgenre we've been thinking about a lot lately. The team of Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker followed Airplane with Top Secret and the Naked Gun movies, and Hot Shots was successful enough to inspire a part duh, but spoofs can be one of the toughest types of comedies to pull off, and they've lately fallen on hard times thanks to the reference-heavy likes of Scary Movie and its sequels, A Haunted House and its sequel, and the various Friedberg Seltzer productions. Here to discuss the art and folly of the spoof is Nathan Rabin and Tasha Robinson. Hello. Hi, Scott. Uh, so, so let's accentuate the positive first. Uh, what goes into a good spoof? Uh, what did the Zucker-Abrams-Zucker team at their best do that others struggle so much to emulate? Well, I would argue that uh, the two kind of keys to Zucker, uh, Abrahams and Zucker, uh, brilliance, uh, transcending, uh, is one, they, they play a lot of things deadpan, uh, at least at the very beginning. Uh, airplane. Uh, it's kind of fascinating to see uh, Leslie Nielsen, how incredibly, incredibly straight and deadpan and dry his performance is, uh, considering how goofy and mugging he would be towards uh, the very end of their collaboration and on when he kind of became a slapstick superstar. I think there's also a, a certain specificity uh, that they really, really nail, where they get the the tone and the look and the music, just everything exactly, exactly right. I mean, uh, the best spoofs know their uh, source material intimately. Uh, the best spoofs love their source uh, material intimately. I'm thinking about, you know, television. Um, Police Squad, which later became the movie that uh, Naked Gun was adapted from, is so, so dry, like nobody even smiles in it. And maybe my favorite gag in uh, Police Squad is the end of every episode. Um... <laughs> They would have like a freeze frame, as you know, the tradition of, of old cop shows. Except it wasn't a true freeze frame. Everybody was just standing very, very still. <laughs> and eventually somebody would just kind of break and, and start moving or they'd like go to the bathroom. And that is such a brilliant, brilliant joke. But it's, you know, uh, it's genius is dependent on audiences kind of being familiar with the source material. And being like, yeah, that is a cheesy, goofy cliche that like all these shows ended on with this like freeze frame that really made no sense. But everybody laughing at some inane comment. And I kind of wonder if part of the reason that spoofs are having more of a hard time is because there are so many more movies these days and people have so much more access to them that there's less of a sense of like a monoculture where you can parody something that specifically and just assume that everybody's seen it. I mean, when Spaceballs came out, I, I think there's a feeling, you know, of course everybody's seen Star Wars and probably everybody's seen it a few times. And you look at movies like, you know, Hot Shots, which was specifically parodying Top Gun, um, or, you know, as you say, like the police squad or like the top secret or, or stuff like that. There's, there's a sense of 
or Young Frankenstein, actually, like right, the whole Mel right. Brooks oeuvre. There's just this sense of everybody's seen this, so we can make some really specific jokes about it. Um, but more and more, like the the Friedberg Seltzer movies I've seen seem to have this kind of, well, the probability is that you haven't seen all these movies, so let's see how many things we can reference. Let's just throw in gags about 50 different movies, and maybe you've seen two of them. Maybe some of these jokes will hit. There's like a, a sense of desperation to them almost. I think another kind of key to making a successful spoof is to uh, spoof something that takes itself seriously. And that's one of the problems with the scary movie uh, series, beyond them being overwhelmingly terrible, is that they're parodying Scream. Uh, Wes Craven's movie, which is in itself a deconstruction and sort of a, a semi-parody of, and that's something you find with, with uh, Friedberg and Seltzer is that, you know, date movie, you know, they will, they will be, you know, sort of spoofing these things that are already comedies. Right. It's like which fro- kind of make, putting frosting on frosting. Totally. Yeah. It, it makes it doubly redundant. Like, yeah. Meet the make, parents, I think was that was a big one for a date movie, but there was a right, lot of them. Right. And I actually kind of dis- dispute your, your point, Tosh. I think, uh, I think the problem is, is that, uh, they're choosing targets that everybody knows, and they're and they're ta- and they're and they're sort of uh, ba- ba- putting barely any kind of a twist, maybe sort of a gross twist on what we've already seen. It's very and there, there's no angle, and the other and a couple there's of no other point things. Of view. There's no perspective. A couple of other things about them too is that you know. Airplane has a story, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, and it's actually kind of important to have that, to have some sort of a narrative through line, and then you can kind of put all these sort of jokes on top of it. And the other thing that, that, that a movie like Airplane does is it just varies the gags quite a bit. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of humor. There's, there's some visual puns, you know, there's, there's actually some pretty sophisticated gags that take a lot of buildup. You know, it gives you a lot of different looks. It's not just, it's not just trying to strike that same note over and over again. There's also, I mean, I think a really good parody. One of my favorite uh, parodies of probably the last 20 years was Christopher Guest's A Mighty Wind. And part of the humor there for me is like I grew up on folk and that style of music is really familiar to me. But part of it is just he has a tendency to go in and make fun of a scene in a way that it's funny even if you're not familiar, even if you're not seeing like a specific piece of source material that he's parodying. The characters are interesting and the, the jokes are funny like you don't have to be you don't have to own a show dog and go to dog shows to find best in show funny <laughs> and that itself i think is is kind of rare is the the parody that's specific enough to have a hook but also broad enough to or at least funny enough to appeal to people whether they're really familiar with like the source material the source scene the source idea or not yeah i mean uh, another example um, is you know an airplane that that flashback uh, that first flashback to where, with the Saturday Night Fever parody. I mean you know let's just say you're from another planet and you don't know anything about Saturday Night Fever. I mean you know there, there's this wonderful visual gag where where you know he's out there dancing and, and uh, you know as he keeps going you know the laws of physics keep being def- more and more defined to where his legs and arms are all sort of kicking out at the same time and you know then a bunch of juggling balls come in and it's just a wonderful uh, gag that of course you have to you don't need to have any point of reference for it's just it's not all reference you can kind of do a lot of different things right yeah, i feel like there's a lot of absurdism in like the the best uh movie spoofs like in you know in your airplane in the best uh, sequences of, of top secret in this is spinal tap there's just this sense of absurdism and willingness to go over the top whereas the friedberg Seltzer movies i've seen there's a lot of basically just recognition 
definition humor, as you say. There's a lot of what if we put this movie and this movie together, the the juxtaposition of, you know, Katniss Everdeen meeting the Avengers, that in and of itself is supposed to be funny because you know these two things. But I mean, if you don't find it inherently funny, the idea of two worlds colliding over and over, well, then you're kind of lost in that film. Well, and kind of what that kind of uh, epitomizes is, you know, sort of this concept of uh, pop culture reference as punchline. Mm-hmm. The idea is like, you know Juno, and now she's falling into some poop. <laughs> some, something that you're familiar and falling that down into hilarious. poop. That sounds hilarious. It's funny, so that. you had, you know, A to B, and then boom, you have a Friedberg seltzer joke. You've right. earned your $1,000 uh, punching up their strips for the day. Um, but again, you've contributed nothing to comedy. You have no point of view. It doesn't move the story forward. You're not actually commenting on what you're doing in an affectionate way or like a scathing way. And that's one of my problems with these movies is there's a sense of they're vaguely familiar with this stuff. You know, they've, they've seen commercials. Uh, maybe they saw this movie, but they don't really care one way or the other. They're just throwing it out there because they know that the audience also will be very, very uh, familiar. And that's just that, that cheap buzz of familiarity is enough to, I guess, keep these gentlemen employed in Hollywood. But yeah, it leads their movie to be pretty pretty worthless well it's kind of like also you know an audience you know you have this audience that's being flattered for recognizing you know this obscure reference to a 200 million dollar right, chronicles of nerd <laughs> right oh man i got that one you know that movie made half a billion dollars you know and everybody saw it so uh good good for you uh, i mean it's just it's just a lost art i was trying to think about you know we, we I, I guess i'm the only one here who's seen they came together um, uh, other than Genevieve, who is, who's, uh, you know, Manning working the, the boards. boards. Um, but, uh, um, On the ones and twos. And that's a, that's a pretty clever though. Though weirdly, like, I think the script had actually been around for a while, um, which might explain why that, while the, the plot apparatus of that movie is, is you, is heavily, you've gotten mail <laughs> influenced. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, maybe they, they spruced up that, that, uh, reference or not, but, um, you know, with that, that movie, and I, I think, um, in Wet Hot American Summer, and then uh, those movies. What were they, that uh, the artist guy did? What were those? What were those ones? The James Bond spoofs that he w- he was doing. Oh, the uh, OSS. Yeah, OSS. Oh, right, right, right. The right. Yeah. Films. I like both of those. Those are very clever. And again, it just it totally nails the look, and that's the it. feel yeah. of, of what it's what it's critiquing, what it's parodying. Yeah, I mean that that's it. That's exactly right. Is it, it's so so specific and so full of interesting little details and twists i mean even something like airplane is really is funny just the titles of that film are funny because you, you know because you recognize them as being from airport you know and, and they have this kind of urgency to them that's just completely ridiculous i also i mean i think it's jumping the gun to say that uh the, the parody films are a lost art or you know that we're entering some sort of slough to spawn. I mean, it's only been seven years since hot fuzz and Hot Fuzz was a very, very specific uh, kind of movie. I mean, I I think we kind of glossed over this when you said it, Scott, but having a plot is one of the most important things I think you can do to have mm-hmm. like a really functional, funny uh, satire or parody. A movie that sort of, that theoretically might stand on its own without the jokes. I think if you look at a film, if you stripped away all the gags and there would still be like a spine there of a story that people might be interested in, that's a pretty good indicator. So, I mean, I mean, you've got Hot Fuzz, you've got uh, Tropic Thunder, uh, I thought Black Dynamite was pretty funny. Oh my oh, god, yeah, so yeah, great. Definitely. So, so you know, uh, even The World's End, you could make an argument for that you know, being a parody of, of particular kinds of science fiction movies. And I think one of the things all of these movies have in common, like Scott's Scott's not shaking his head, but he's kind of doing the Scott bobble of <laughs> I guess I could maybe grant you that. No. But 
all of these movies use parody and satire of existing things to add on to something that's already there, that's that's already a functional movie. And that's why you kind of, you know, get the, the eyebrow lift, because it's not just raw jokes like an airplane movie is. Like, you know, Airplane itself has a plot, but like a lot of its followers, even like the other Zazz movies, I think get looser and looser about that and more and more just become collective collectives of gags. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what you're missing. I think the the drift away from the there's something specific going on that we have to worry about in airplane to the here's a whole bunch of stuff you recognize in Freeburg and Seltzer is like is a pretty straight line. Yeah, that's true. Right. And I mean watching um Menace to Society recently for movie of the week made me kind of appreciate uh, don't be a menace to throw while drinking your juice in the hood, <laughs> which is one of the I think it's it a, it a very faint praise, one of the last really good things the Wayans have been involved with. And one of the reasons why that movie works and I'm gonna get you sucka uh, to say an earlier uh Keen Never Wins uh parody, um, is because, you know, they are drawing very directly from menace to society. Like the entire sp- of don't be a menace to Central while drinking your juice in the hood is taken from menace to society which takes itself very very seriously mm-hmm. so that works and again i mean you talk about something like hot fuzz like there's such uh artfulness behind its construction that is completely lost in a friedberg seltzer movie where again it's just incredibly random and the plot just makes no sense at all and seems to turn into a different movie every eight minutes because you're spoofing and referencing and stealing and piggybacking on a different movie and you have no integrity and you have no originality or spine of your own. Well, the sophistication of Hot Fuzz and Black Dynamite especially has to do with um, how the joke extends to what the film is like formally, you know, right, like right, right. I mean, totally. hot, hot fuzz has the Michael Bay style has, he cuts like cuts like hell. I mean, there's a ton of cutting in that movie that, that Edgar Wright left to his own devices would not, I mean, it's not like Edgar Wright is Mr. Master shot. Uh, but he is he's not the type of guy who's just going to cut his film to ribbons but that's the think? style of I it. mean he he's he's very fond of the comic montage He is but but that movie that movie has just got a lot of random cutting for is mm. part of the part of the joke and Black Dynamite is, has that has the texture of a of a black exploitation film and the feel of it and then once you establish that and once you establish a story then you can have all kinds of absurd shit happening and it and it and it, and it all sort of hangs together so we've solved the spoof today. <laughs> we well, I think what we've I think what we've solved is just that the the I, it's almost like the spoof has gone in two different directions. There's the the hot fuzz direction where there's a story with a bunch of gags on it and there's the 41 year old virgin who knocked up Sarah Marshall and felt super bad uh, about wow. it version of which oh, please let's have a moratorium on titles like that. That was bad. Uh which, you know, is just a conglomeration of, of jokes, but they both like airplane is the father of both of those species. They just, they right, went in right. two different directions. And I think uh, the answer is that the, the one direction is good and the other direction, not well, so much. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I was thinking about this when, uh, during the Saturday Night Light Fever uh, sequence where I had very, very uh, mixed feelings about it. On one hand, it is kind of a Friedberg seltzer joke where it's like, here's a reference. It's something. And at that time it was like a year and a half, maybe in the past, like it was a very, very recent mm-hmm. reference. But if they had done it, it would have been, hey, look, it's 
suddenly this bar is a uh, is a disco, and then he would have fell down into some poop. Poop. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all that would happen. It'd be like, hey, you know this thing. Boom, our work is done here. On to the next scene. We paid Fred Willard a lot of money. He has three lines. Um, whereas again, when you have an airplane, it goes so much deeper. Yeah, I mean, and you, you, start have, you with, have you, uh, you start with a reference, and then it get, you build and you build and you build and you build, and there are things going on in the background and the foreground, and there's a density and an inventiveness that you just do not see in, in lesser uh, comic spooks. Oh, ha- I mean, you have Julia Haggerty dancing with a guy with a knife in his back. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So great. Um, but uh, so I, I, this is maybe your... What's, what does it say now? I mean, in terms of where we are now with, with studio-released uh, spoofs, that, that the most successful spoof franchises are the ones that are most despised by critics. <laughs> are, we, are we saying that people are stupid? <laughs> Am uh, I saying that? Are, are we saying that uh, critics are a, a humorless lot who don't want to be caught laughing? No, people are stupid. People are stupid. <laughs> that was my, that's my conclusion. In conclusion, we have contempt for all of you. Good night. Um, <laughs> this will be the People Are Stupid episode of the Resolve This will podcast. be the Please Stop Listening to Us Because Apparently We Hate You All edition of the podcast. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, if you're a super fan of Friedberg Seltzer, you might want to turn off the podcast at this point <laughs> no i mean i i do think that there's a a certain i, I don't want to say humorlessness to critics but i mm. do think that uh, critics are a little afraid to be caught laughing and especially a lot of the humor in a lot of these parodies is kind of kind of dumb and i don't want that i don't want that to sound bad i mean it's like mad magazine uh, style parodies where it's specifically aiming at the 13 year old in us all and you know juno falls into some poop is obviously a, a 13 year old joke but a lot of the stuff uh, in hot fuzz is textually sophisticated but it's still kind of you know uh, it's it's silly humor and i think critics are a little afraid of looking silly Although there's a lot to be said for Mad Magazine as well. I mean, mm-hmm. that's sort of a beloved uh, part of my childhood. And again, I think there was an artfulness uh, to their parodies. Agreed. Um, and also just a, a sense of affection that you just don't see. And again, I think part of the reasons why critics hate these Friedberg Selpers movies is because, you know, they know these movies that they're referencing and have an affection for them uh, and have very intense feelings that, you know, if it's just something that you vaguely reference, like you might get a chuckle out of that. Whereas, you know, somebody who maybe has seen more movies would be, you know, a lot less uh, satisfied. Yeah, you scratch a movie critic, you're very likely to get somebody that cares a lot about cinema and a lot about the parts of cinema that speak to them emotionally. And seeing that made fun of in a petty way, I think, uh, offends the spirit. Yeah, and, and in just a dumb way. You know, to see, yeah, to see, you know, sort of the reverse alchemy. You know, you see cinema gold turned into shit. And then oh. Juno falls in it. <laughs> and then Juno falls in it. All right. Well, this, is, this, has, been a, this has been the most poop-filled uh, segment <laughs> yeah. that we've had. Uh, uh, Tasha, uh, Nathan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, Movie of the Week kicks off Blockbuster Month with Steven Spielberg's Jaws, a movie hailed for not allowing the audience to see the shark until late in the action. There were practical reasons for this, like the hassles of creating a functional and believable mechanical shark, but the strategy of withholding that piece of information also teases the audience's imagination and heightens the suspense. We saw that strategy in play again this summer with Godzilla, which also holds off on showing the monster until the third act. But is it always a good idea to withhold information? Can the tease backfire or seem like a cheat? Here to hold nothing back are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, and from uh, our New York office, Matt Singer. Hi, everybody. Hi, Scott. Hello. Uh, so uh, I, I imagine we all agree that not showing all of the shark in Jaws was a good idea, right? 
I mean, can you imagine at like that, the the big climax where it jumps out of the water on the ship? Can you imagine if it had done that, like the first shark attack, it had just like jumped up on the beach and like eaten the kid and then flopped back in and swum away. <laughs> I mean, we would think about that movie now the way we think about Sharknado. It's just, it, it's just a joke. But so then, so, okay. So why, where did Spielberg succeed where his imitators might fail? Well, I mean, I, I think you can't overestimate the degree to which it's just a fantastic movie, like regardless of of the um, the percentage of shark seen at any particular point of the film i mean it's it, i think even well i all right i'm gonna dial back i don't think you could have overcome the uh, giant plastic shark flopping onto the beach and uh in the opening scene but even without that the sort of gimmick of withholding the shark for so long you know it's it's a really terrifically told tale it's it's tremendously tense and that first shark attack i mean that that sense of there's something that can kill you and you'll never see it coming i mean that's that's like the essence of horror right there it's terrifying yeah and it keeps finding variations on how to do that too where where uh, you know, first the first time you you see nothing or virtually nothing, a little bit of shark's eye view, and 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 then uh, the victim disappears, and then a, it's sort of a different approach for each attack, and um, you know, it, it almost I'm not going to say it couldn't, it, it still could have worked if you never saw the shark, but certainly the moments before you see the shark are, are extremely effective. What do you think, Matt? I, I was thinking back to Jaws and watching it as a kid, and one thing that I uh, I think Spielberg does so well in Jaws is he doesn't. He's hiding the shark, but he doesn't seem to be hiding the shark. He doesn't, he's not being coy. You don't sit there and going, you know, why is he, uh, uh, why is he uh, hiding the shark from us? He does it in, in such a natural way. And he, you know, keeps the camera above the boat in a way that just seems totally appropriate to the film that you're not sitting there, you're waiting for the shark, but you're not, you don't feel like you're being cheated out of the shark, which I think is something that a lot of times, uh, you see happen in movies that kind of try to ape Jaws is what you they they uh, they take on really silly point of view shots or they just generally cut away deliberately to keep you from seeing whatever you're not supposed to see but you desperately want to see. Uh, he he just had a way of doing it where it didn't feel inappropriate and it didn't feel like it it was a, a cheat at all and I think that was part of the the reason for the film's success. I mean, there is sort of a sense of to which the shark literally physically lives in a different world from the protagonist. You know, the shark is in the water, the people are in the air, that's the way it works. What makes it frightening is that people keep choosing to go into the water. And as the film progresses, part of the the developing sense of tension is the the degree that they're entering a world that isn't their world and that they can't get back out of. You know, they go further and further out to sea, the boat starts to come apart. And then when it finally disintegrates, they have no choice but to be in this other plane that they really don't want to be because it's not their territory. Well, he, Spielberg is also really clever about uh, what kind of the way he conveys you know, information. He always likes to do it in an offhand way. A lot of reaction shots, and uh, you know, the, the score certainly in this film is really important. Um, but it, you know, what I found kind of interesting now that I think about it uh, is is how uh, Bong Joon Ho, when he when he did his twist on Jaws uh, with the host, did the opposite. It was just like let's just show the monster right mm-hmm. up front, and then and then uh, maybe later, maybe do different things later. But uh, I thought that was kind of a clever way of doing it, and maybe proof that you don't necessarily have to do the same thing 
the, the, try the same trick over and over again. And that sure? works so well because because you see this horrific monster, and then you have to spend the rest of the movie thinking, well, this shadowy space over here, maybe that horrific monster <laughs> I saw at the beginning of the movie is there. Yeah, um, it, it's it's quite effective. It was the same thing with the recent horror film Mama, which really surprised me because there's a, very much a language to that kind of horror film, and it's the same sort of thing. Like here's a little tease, here's a little corner, here's a here's a like one frame glimpse of something uh, that you can barely process that's horrible and then at the end you'll get to see it now that film puts the the horrible ghost thing up front pretty quickly and then just lets you spend the rest of the movie thinking i I know exactly what that thing looks like and it's probably right behind me right now well uh, what about the case of godzilla uh because the final third of that movie is as much fun as i've had at a summer movie in years but I, I wonder if seeing more of Godzilla might have helped me do the first two thirds uh, without fidgeting. Where, where do you all stand on that? What, what do you think of that? The, the way um, uh, Gareth Edwards sort of handled that. I don't think it needed more Godzilla. I think it needed less plot. I think it needed less people saying a lot of stuff that made absolutely no difference to the plot. It, it needed to be shorter, not more monstery. I mean, I, I you spend the whole movie waiting to see Godzilla, and then when you see him, it's this like full, full body, full frontal like roaring thing like it's it's a huge payoff for something that you've been expecting i my problem wasn't that they didn't do that earlier my problem was that it took so long to get to the fireworks factory yeah i, I like i like the build up to godzilla i and with tasha that that uh I felt like the the real trimming could have been done in terms of, of superfluous characters or character or not even superfluous characters characters that, that ultimately this the film just kind of loses sight of you know and interesting and interesting yeah uh, but I thought the slow reveal the way we saw Godzilla and the Mutos uh, through like you know uh, windows and and and. Uh, and I think mirrors or some from a distance or, or just, there's always some for there's a lot of shots like mediated by a window, by glass, by television or something like that. And I thought that was a really interesting way to build suspense. Uh, I like I like I like the slow slow reveal on that one. Like visually, uh, this Godzilla reminded me a lot of Cloverfield, and, and Cloverfield is also a movie that dispenses the monster in very very small doses. But one of the things Cloverfield does is give you a monster that looks very different depending on whether it's like standing or rearing or roaring or turning or like it has a whole series of different things it does that radically change its shape so you see more of the monster early on I think than you see in a lot of other films but you keep getting different views of it you keep getting different impressions of it and what it withholds what that film holds until late in the film is like the full body overhead perspective shot where you can kind of take it in all at once so you don't feel robbed of of shots of it the way you seem to feel with Godzilla you just sort of feel like you're not getting a full complete picture until the end well actually I mean I, I actually am fine with the strategy and Godzilla is more it was more just a, a, a prompt that than a, than, a, than a, you know I do of course wish the first two thirds were a little more compelling than they are but my god that you know getting the, the the monster that that late into everything that happens is so unbelievably exciting so uh, wait wait were you just shopping around for someone to disagree i was with? trolling i don't know what i was doing <laughs> uh, uh what, what do you what do you think matt uh I'm, I'm pretty much in agreement i i, I don't know that i would maybe go so far as to say i don't even need less plot as as much as i need less specific actors that were in the movie you know aaron taylor johnson who's named <laughs> ford brody in the film after chief brody and jaws there's a very spielbergian vibe to the entire thing but i mean kind of a slap in the face to uh the, the awesomeness of of jaws and chief brody when your character who's named after uh chief brody is such a a big dull dud frankly i mean not, if you're not, not, not going to see the monster you know what you're what you watch instead has to be compelling and that's what's so great about jaws is that you don't see the shark 
But while you're not seeing the shark, you are completely wrapped up in the adventure with these three wonderful characters on the boat. And they're all so well-defined and so interesting, and they have such great things to say. I mean, one of the best scenes in Jaws is when they're just sitting around drinking and sharing, you know, uh, war stories and, and the story of the, uh, what is it, the Indianapolis going into the water. I mean, that's, that's not about uh, the, the monster at all. You know, and, and in, in Godzilla, the, the monster is incredible, but the, the human actors... And the human characters definitely leave a lot to be desired. I, I don't want to digress too much, Matt, but I would like to know, what does Aaron Taylor Johnson have to do to get off your shit list? <laughs> That's a very good question. I don't know. I, I guess I, I guess maybe make less movies? <laughs> <laughs> Consider another uh, occupation? Yeah. I think or, we- or just, you know, I, I, I think maybe just not be the bland uh, hero in a lot of movies. I, I, I think that it's just that I... He's, he winds up being the boring center of a lot of uh, movies with interesting stuff around him, like Godzilla, where Godzilla is great, and a couple of the other actors, like Brian Cranston uh, is great in the small amount of time we get to spend with him, but he just winds up being the boring guy at the center who's like, you know, Sergeant Joe Default. It's just, <laughs> I, prefer, I would prefer a, a different option. Uh, how about Sam Worthington? Is, he, is, is, that, is that pretty much the mold there? In my nightmare, Sam Worthington and Aaron Taylor Johnson make the the worst buddy cop movie of all time. Do they have Charlie Hunnam as their uh, as their third? Their Joe Pesci. He plays the he plays the captain. Yeah. Uh, so, c- can you think of examples of cases where withholding information was a bad idea? Oh God, yes. All right, Tasha. So there, there, are, there are a bunch of them. And I what I think it really comes down to, I, I have sort of a mental list that I started making after I watched the Halle Berry movie Perfect Stranger, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen for withholding something from the audience that's meant to be a big twist at the end and is meant to reveal new information. But nothing that happens in the movie makes sense until you get to the twist. So it's like two hours of thinking, no one would ever do that. That's incredibly stupid. This makes no sense. What is going on? Why? is she doing that who the hell is this person oh i see whatever and there are there are a handful of movies like that uh, the recent uh third person the paul haggis movie i think falls into that category uh the anne hathaway movie passengers pretty much any movie that withholds information from the audience that would let you care about the characters or let the story make sense or that would like permit you to be engaged i think is just a fundamentally bad idea like the story a story like The Sixth Sense works because it you believe in the characters and you like the characters and you care about the plot even before the twist comes along. If you have to have the twist in order to care at all about the movie and the twist comes in the last five minutes, it's just poison. Uh, for me, the one that jumped to mind uh, as a bad example is actually uh, you know another Jaws Spielberg ripoff, which is uh, Super 8, where you wait the entire movie to see this creature, very Jaws-esque. And when the creature shows up, it just looks like a big pile of garbage. And, uh, <laughs> it's just so underwhelming. And if they had shown, you know, it, it does bear similarities to like Cloverfield, which is another, you know, J.J. Abrams production, or or vaguely like the, the monster in The Host. But, you know, when you build up that amount of anticipation, you know, 100 minutes or whatever it is, to see this monster, we've been waiting to see this entire time. It has to live up to the to the buildup. And and in the case of Super 8, I really did not think it, it did at all. And I, I also wonder if maybe sometimes this, you know, hiding the the monster is a is a 
it's something that filmmakers do when they maybe uh, they have some sort of pretensions to or uh, to 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 uh, making something more important than it is you know like oh uh, when you see the monster that's a b movie that's that's junk if they show the monster but i'm making something important about childhood and coming of age and families so i don't show the monster like that's somehow superior and i don't necessarily think that it is you know it can be done very effectively you know like jaws and many other great films but it can also backfire as well. Just because you don't show the monster doesn't mean your monster movie is necessarily better than uh, monster movies that do show the monster. The monster is a metaphor, and you can't see a metaphor. <laughs> uh, just briefly, I was, I was thinking of one that, that's, I don't know, I, I'm torn on this because I actually think it's kind of a spooky moment when it happens, but there's a, a, a Jotter Noir film called uh, Curse of the Demon from 1957, a British horror film. And, and uh, uh, much, of the, much of the tension hinges on whether or not there actually is a curse of the demon or a demon doing the cursing. And at the last minute, this is all withheld until the last minutes of the film when the studio mandated that they show the demon. And I'm kind of torn on this because it is kind of a spooky moment. It's kind of a cool, if silly looking demon, but it, there's a better film where, where you actually don't, you end up still walking away wondering what was it, what what was the true thing in this movie. It was probably something that, that, you know, Jacques Tenor, at least Val Luton was responsible for making too, because that was that's that was always their approach is to is to uh, suggest and suggest and suggest as as long as they possibly could, which is you know a budgetary thing as much as a uh, as a narrative strategy, but uh, it, it's a good one. Oh sure, like in the Cat People movies. I mean, Val Luton was was very much into <laughs> make this cheaply by not actually showing you anything. But those movies are so well plotted and so well acted, and the suggestion is so good that they, I think, they work. So I guess my my last question to all of you is: What what are you keeping from me? What secrets have, <laughs> have you not told me? Um, anyway, uh, uh, Tasha, uh, Keith, uh, Matt, thank you very much. I'll let you guess whether I'm actually grateful or not, but I won't actually say thank you. I'll just leave it open. <laughs> In honor of Roger Ebert and the fine documentary Life Itself, I've affectionately dubbed the game this week, Oh Roger, in, in which I quiz you on those cases where Ebert cut against the grain, either hailing a film many hated or panning a film many loved. I'll read a quote from an Ebert review, and you name the movie. Simple as that. This is a buzzer game, so the Scott Tobias rule, that's me, uh, is in effect. If you buzz in and get the answer wrong, you lose a point. Uh, joining me are fellow Ebert scholars Keith Phipps. Nathan Rabin and Matt Singer. <laughs> Matt Singer a little slow on the draw. Got to have to be a little faster than that uh, to win this uh, quiz. But uh, let's 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 start it out. Everyone gets to. This is going to be a free for all. Mmm, I like those. Okay, Blank is the most frankly and cheerfully fascist big star movie since Death Wish, a celebration of violence in which the heroes write themselves a license to drink, screw, smoke, and beat one another up. Sometimes, for variety, they beat up themselves. It's macho porn, the sex movie Hollywood has been moving toward for years, in which eroticism between the sexes is replaced by all-guy locker room fights. Women, who have, a, who have, ha, who have a, had a lifetime of practice at dealing with little boy posturing, will instinctively see through it. Men may get off on the testosterone rush. The fact that it is very well made and has a great first act certainly clouds the issue. Nobody. Wow. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think I'd, I, I thought, I thought it, I'd have people buzzing right away. Since... Death Wish. You yeah. Most frankly and cheerfully fascist. 
Yes, Nathan Raymond. That would be the motion picture entitled Fight Club. Yes, Nathan, there. got it. Well done. Well done. Yay. I love love those love those answers. They're right on the edge, right on the yeah, edge of you. I was I was also incredibly wrong about uh, uh, Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in my initial review when I was like twelve, uh, so I, I could identify with. I, uh, we had, with yeah, I remember that saying. we had to sneak you into that screening because you were underage. I was. I'm like, it's so exciting seeing an R-rated movie. <laughs> uh, all right, next <laughs> next question. I'm gonna reach into the gaming hat. I love the summertime. I love strolling down Michigan Avenue on a balmy June evening, <laughs> past the tourists and the shoppers and the lovers and the people dawdling on their way home from work. And I love going into a theater for a sneak preview of a summer movie and buying popcorn and settling back in my seat and enjoying, enjoying a movie containing a chainsaw. Also, an explosive device with a red digital readout that nobody will ever be able to see. This one is a concealed inside a fake golf club. Everyone's looking at me mysteriously. This is this is a film that no one else liked but Roger Ebert. Chainsaw and a fake and an explosive golf. device concealed inside a fake golf club. A chainsaw and an explosive. You might say it, it takes place on a boat. I don't know if that. Helped. Oh, that's speed two. Right? Speed two. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. No. Remember that. Speed two. Oh dear God. Yep. Um, so the quotes are the golf quotes. clubs. <laughs> Yeah, you don't you don't remember that? How can you not remember that? Uh, all right, so. I, I'm not even sure I deserve that point though, because that helped. Uh, you, you helped me out. Nah, I'm gonna give it to you anyway. All right, because yeah. everyone heard that. All right, third question. And so what we get finally is a movie of attitudes. Blank is death, blank life, and they manage to make the two seem so similar that life's hardly worth the extra bother. The visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum, and all the movie lacks is a, is a lot of day-old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby, filling the place with a cloying sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. Blank doesn't even make Paul Bearer. And I have an additional clue because I felt that was going to be difficult. Uh-huh. <laughs> the word has gotten out that blank is a story of a love affair between these two people. It is not. So necrophiliacs, please stay cool. She knows it. Genevieve, Genevieve's got this. <laughs> the worst part is I've read all of these reviews and yeah. I'm just blanking on blanking it. On it. Well, I'm, I'm not going to give this to anybody. It's Harold and Maude. Oh. Oh, dear uh, God. Oh. I, uh... Just listening to this, I'm 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 reminded once again that that even even being wrong, uh, Ebert was a, a joy to read. Yeah. Oh, totally. These are these are uh, these are some good <laughs> these are some good good passages. This They're is a, joyous uh, eviscerations of some of our favorite films. This I should think would be a quick buzzer thing. Finally. All right. Ready? Instead, Blank chose to interrupt the the almost hypnotic pull of that relationship in order to pull back to his jokey small town satire. Is he afraid? Yeah. Yes. Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet is yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Blue Velvet is right. Boy, boy, was he wrong on that movie. Did he ever revisit that one? Uh, I don't know if he did. He wasn't really the type to do that. I don't. I don't. Other than the Brown Bunny, I, I think of no other instances where Ebert has recanted one of his yeah. reviews. Or I remember in the screening once uh, uh, him saying he he wondered if he should revisit Donnie Darko, but I yeah, whether he ever did. I think Blue Velvet would be, would be probably even an even better place to start. Yeah. Um. And he was only he was like two and a half stars on Donnie Darko. I looked that up. Yeah. It wasn't that. I mean, a lot of, and that, that movie got plenty of mixed reviews, you know? Yeah. All right. Here we go. It is exciting to watch this movie. It is never boring. Blank is like a juggler who starts out with balls and gradually adds baseball bats, top hats, and chainsaws. It's not an intellectual experience, but an emotional one. Blank is like a jazz soloist who cuts loose, leaving behind the song of the group, walking off stage and out of the club, and keeps on improvising right down the street, looking for someone who can keep up with him. True, the movie is not altogether successful. It's so jagged, so passionate in its ambition, it raises more questions than it answers. 
This is actually a really tough one, I'm afraid. I feel like this is a Robin Williams motion picture. <laughs> uh, because of the effusive praise for the crazy jazz man like And the juggler. There's, all, there's some metaphor, the juggler, there's some metaphor yes. mixing here. It's <laughs> like a juggler and a jazz soloist. But, but I cannot for the life of me figure out which one of these crazy uh, free jazz uh, Robin Williams motion pictures this might be. It is not. It's She Hate Me by uh, Spike Lee. Oh, oh, interesting. She Hate Me. Another one. I think it is. A, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think that was a successful movie, but I can definitely see feeling that way about yeah. that movie. For it's, sure. It's, it's got something. This is this is an insane one. All right. <laughs> uh, all right. Blank is among the best science fiction films I've seen. Frightening, suspenseful, intelligent, and when it needs to be, <laughs> rather... Yes, Nathan Raven. Knowing. Knowing is correct. Oh, wow. Oh, I was... Oh, oh. I, was <laughs> I know. This, this, this is, that is madness. <sighs> Absolute madness. Did you give four stars for that? It did. It did. Four stars for knowing. Uh, Alex, Alex Proyas. Proyas. He has the thing he for Alex Proyas. He loved Alex Proyas. Yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't. I, I didn't really get the whole Dark City thing either. But, no, I, I, I'm into I like Dark, Dark City. City. I, I like Dark, especially. I have a good-looking motion picture. Not so much the first time, but every time I've seen it a couple times since, and and it st- stuck with me. Um, right. Knowing uh, less. So. Actually, no, knowing stuck with me quite a bit, but not for. Not in a good way. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. For some time, the thought has been gathering at the back of my mind that we are in the final act. We have finally insulted the planet so much that it can no longer sustain us. It is exhausted. It never occurred to me that vegetation might exterminate us. <laughs> Nathan Raven. Uh, the happening. <laughs> the happening is correct. No. Oh, in fact, the form of the planet's revenge remains undefined in my thoughts, although I have read of rising sea levels and end of species. Oh, boy, howdy. Uh, uh, the happening. Uh, what's the score, uh, Genevieve? Uh, it's uh, Nathan three, uh, Keith two, Matt. Matt, you have some catching up to do. How many stars did the happening get in that review? Uh, I believe I have, just three. All right. I have the happening of scores wow. right now. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Okay, here we go. Blank's river rat is always on the delectable edge of overacting. He sneers. Up, <laughs> oh, Matt Singer. Anaconda. Yes, uh, Anaconda. Yeah, oh my God, Mr. This, John Voight. This is amazing. This 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 claim. <laughs> Uh, John Voight, a serious actor, isn't afraid to pull out the stops as a melodramatic villain. In his final scene, which he plays with a wink, will be remembered whenever great movie exits are treasured. Um, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> no, at I all. don't either. It is an amazing <laughs> exit. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I did that for uh, uh, New Cult Cannon back in the day, and we 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 gift it. We gift that yep. particular moment that because uh, well, nobody nobody expected his character to be raptured uh, at the end of the movie. So I think people were. Pretty surprised by that. That's pretty great. Um, all right, here we go. Another one. Uh, this isn't. Oh god, this is ridiculous. Um, the movie's last thirty minutes are like a kick in the gut as Blank spirals through the ultimate results of his addiction. He appeals to his fathers, to his friends, and even to his dealer. And the fact is, he gets more help than perhaps he deserves. He makes firm resolutions to stop using and vague plans to get back into rehab. And his friends stand by him as much as they can. The movie's outcome reflects more or less accurately. What awaits most cocaine addicts who do not get clean? And and here's a, I'm gonna get here's the giveaway. Are you ready? If no one's buzzed in yet, he describes the three lead performances as flawless, which will make you laugh when you hear the title of, of this movie. Yes, oh, Nathan Raymond. I, I want to undo this because I'm gonna say the boost. Nope, not the boost. Nope. Oh. Was that you again? Yeah, that was definitely me. But I did not mean to do this the second time. <laughs> uh, the movie would be less than zero. Oh. I, that was a why, because I was, yeah. yeah. Yep, intern, intern had that one. 
yeah. At least I, one I, of those uh, performances was flawless. I, I, I would, yes, I would call the other one, the other two performances, flawful. <laughs> uh, Jamie I Gers- would say that Andrew McCarthy was less than a zero in that motion yeah. picture. Uh, yeah. Uh, nope, I can't think of another thing. Um, okay, uh, three more, and it's uh, Nathan went back a, a notch, so it's it's getting kind of exciting. Two, two, and one. Matt is is back, back in the game. Um, blank is an ideological mess, a paranoid right wing fantasy masquerading as an Orwellian warning. It pretends to oppose the police state and forced mind control, but all it really does is celebrate the nastiness of its hero. I know this. Yes, you do. Yeah. Oh, of course. Clockwork Orange. There you go. Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Yep. Uh, A lot of people hating hating on Clockwork Orange at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, I've, I've, I've been all over the place with that movie over the years. Yeah. I've, I've felt that way about that movie. I don't know that I feel that way about that movie now, though. Yep, nope. Uh, so, so Keith jumps out to, to a uh, uh, three to two to one lead to uh, with, two, with two uh, questions left. Uh, here we go. As for the movie, I liked what I saw, but I wanted more. I know the story behind the movie. Blank promoted the project from scratch on talent and nerve, and I think it's quite an achievement for a first-timer. It was made on a low budget. Uh, but the part that needs work that didn't cost money. It's the screenplay. Having created the characters and fashioned the outline, Blank doesn't do much with his characters except let them talk too much, especially when they should be unconscious from shock and loss of blood. Is that Reservoir Dogs? Reservoir Dogs, yeah. that's right. That's right. So Keith is... We've got a lot of premature... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Excessive bark. Yep. I apologize. Premature barking from Nathan, but uh, but, but that wraps it up for Keith. Uh, no. this, la- this last one is for Pride. Um, what if he gets it wrong twice? Then maybe. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. True. That's right. Keith can fall back twice. You got to wait for him to fail twice and then yeah. buzz in. That's Take your a chance. A lot of guesses, Keith. Um, <laughs> this is another ridiculous opinion. Are you ready? Uh, how could they do this to blank? How could they put such a fresh and cheerful... Yes, Nathan. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's right. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. They're talking about Jennifer Jason Leigh, (laughs) who actually uh, entered a nunnery uh, shortly after (laughs) starring in uh, Fast Times at High. She was so ashamed at having shown her Uh, bosoms. Well, it's just so funny to think about Jennifer Jason Leigh. Like, how could they put such a fresh and cheerful person into such a scuzz pit of a movie? I mean, like her career... She's also the daughter of Vic Murrow, so she's kind of a second-generation, you know, uh, character. Yeah, yes. Gritty uh, character. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, kind of a misinterpretation. And it, it, that was the thing about Blue Velvet, too. He felt like he had to defend That's Isabella true. Rossellini from all that she went through in that movie. But uh, I don't think either one of them needed defending, nope. nor did their movies, which were great. But we love Roger Ebert, and, uh, and, and we miss him, of course. And, uh, and uh, Keith Phipps knows more about him than anyone based <laughs> on this <laughs> quiz. Is that possible? <laughs> Um, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's not, but he's, he's quick on the draw. Um, so the movie's quite good. Uh, the Life Itself motion picture. That's what I understand. Um, it is, it is. So, uh, Matt, uh, Nathan, Keith, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in... Tasha Robinson and Nathan Raven have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Pandering to me is encouraged and will likely <laughs> give you an edge. Uh, who wants to go first? Nathan wants right. to go first, according to Tasha. Sure. Uh, where's the uh, where's the where's the clock there's the timer? So uh, exactly uh, how where I'm, where I'm at my sputtering. All right, Nathan Raven. Three, two, one, go. Scott. 
I believe that you can agree with me that romantic comedies overwhelmingly are terrible, terrible, terrible. One of the worst genres you can possibly have. However, there is one motion picture that is a total anomaly and kind of fixes all that's wrong about romantic comedies. It's a film entitled Obvious Child, starring Jenny Slate in her breakthrough performance as a uh, spunky, incredibly lovable uh, New York comedian who becomes impregnated uh, during a one-night stand and then has to deal with the moral choices. It's funny. It's tender. It's really spontaneous and real and i love it great you should see it oh my god well we no. lost we, we, we lost a microphone yeah. but uh, you gained a recommendation yeah. everything's okay oh. here we go yep see i wanted to punctuate it with a uh, with a mic slap hand. i know my god <laughs> with a little known mic slap it's supposed to be a mic drop exactly that's true yeah, yeah. a mic a mic punch <laughs> mic uh, punch. uh all right uh, tasha robinson uh, now to you uh, three, two, one, go. All right. I hope by now you've all seen Jonathan Glazer's film Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson as an alien predator picking off human prey in Scotland. I want to recommend uh, Michael Faber's fabulous novel, uh, which inspired it. Faber's version of Under the Skin has the same premise, but it has a completely different plot. The film's protagonist is trying to survive by understanding humanity. The book's protagonist is trying to survive by distancing herself from humanity. The book and the film basically approach the same ideas from opposite directions, but they're both fabulous. They're beautifully wrought, and they're really particularly interesting in conjunction with each other given how they comment on each other oh wow well that, that was a very exciting uh, uh segment i think both of you went over by by fractions of a second uh uh but you're using all the time you have i think i'm gonna go tasha on this one uh you know but i, mean, I punched the mic I, I, and then i sound like poop this, despite nathan's mic punching and the fact that tasha is recommending something called a book uh, uh, it, I always find the fasc- it fascinating the, the, to, to compare uh, adaptations, particularly when those adaptations are radical, as they are in this case. Um, so I'll give it to you. Woot. All right. Tasha. Hooray for literacy. Totally literacy won cinema 3,876,972. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. That does it for episode 23 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thoughts, please email us at feedback at the Dissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you'd like, we'd encourage you to post ratings and or comments on the show on iTunes. Reviews and comments have been great so far and really help spread the word about the show. I've told my children that they'll get a present if we reach 50 reviews next week. If we don't, no present.